Geek Bill Radio. Hello once again, hey geeks and geekettes. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the mayor of Geekville and the host of Geek for Radio. Coming at you with an episode we've been trying to do for quite some time now. We're calling this our triple whammy of reviews. We are going to talk Moon Knight. We're going to also review Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. I know both of those are a month old now as of this recording. But we haven't had time to get together and actually sit down at the same time to review them. And we will wind up with the halfway point of Obi-Wan Kenobi series, which as of this recording, the first four episodes have aired. The last two, episodes five and six, have not. But joining me once again for this triple whammy review, and in fact, this is so important here, he's actually not in the Knife Soft's padded cell. He is in a remote location in South Kakalaki. Crazy Train, Jonathan Bullock. Yeah, all aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I have to admit, of the inability of us to get together to record is falling on me. The facility that I'm the assistant facility director at work was told about a month ago we were shutting down and we've been working like crazy to get all of our clients discharged so that we should do that <laughs> because we, we wanted to still get paid and we didn't want the company to say, hey, we're going to stop paying you. You better get it done. <laughs> I, I've been quite busy and then what little free time I have had I think I mentioned on the last time we recorded together, which was actually our sister podcast, Class Progressing Memories, I have started going uh, down to Georgia and helping train some young guys to wrestle and actually gotten back in the ring myself, not doing a whole lot. So one little free time I've had has been focused on that and not really helping Seth out. So uh, we apologize, but hey, at least we're getting to these before Thor uh, Love and Thunder drops. So we don't come out when the next month it comes out and we still have to meet. Doctor Strange, we'd really Something be behind like, that. Yeah, yeah, so. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler hole has been breached. Spoiler hole has been breached. We will kick it off in release order here. We'll start with Moon Knight. And really, we had already covered several episodes of Moon Knight before, so uh, we really don't have that much to cover. We don't have to cover the whole thing like we will Doctor Strange. This was my first real experience with Moon Knight. I, I have a couple of Moon Knight comics at home that I'd gotten over the years. I did get a uh, reprint of that Werewolf by Night issue that was his first appearance. But I overall was happy with this. I guess the one big thing that I got right, you kind of kind of call it the stinger at the end of the, the final episode, because we had talked in prep for the series that there were actually three main identities that Moon Knight had. The main one, of course, being Mark Spector, and then the Grant character, who we, we were introduced to first. And like I think I said it when Stephen, we... Stephen Grant. Yeah, we were introduced to Stephen Grant first. I figured they did that for the way of, of storytelling. We, we probably was figured it was more interesting to introduce Steven first than to introduce the badass uh, Mark Spector. But we kept waiting for there to be a Jake Lockley, and I think we had gotten a tease for that, and I think it was the third or fourth episode when Mark blacked out and couldn't remember. But then we got it for about you know, the last 10 seconds where uh, Jake Lockley is Conchu's uh, limo driver, essentially. So uh, I was happy with it overall. I didn't have as much of expectations as you might because it was my first real true 
long-term exposure to the character. So overall, do you think they did justice to the character, and would you like to see more? I do want to see more. It fell a little flat for me. I'm trying to temper my disappointment with the fact that we have never seen Marvel do an origin story this late. Every major character they've introduced in the MCU has had a movie. And those that haven't are no longer canon. Like, say, the introduction of Deathlock in the first season of uh, right. Agent Shield. Uh, they introduced Ghost Rider there, but we know they're going to reintroduce Ghost Rider. And it will be interesting to see if, it, if, if it's a different take than the one we saw from Agent Shield, because that's no longer canon. Right. So, I'm tempering a lot of that. With it. I mean, I guess they sort of did this with Kate Bishop and Hawkeye, but you had that that particular franchise anchored with an established Jeremy Renner Hawkeye. But, Bart, when we saw what we both believe was going to be Photon, the Monica Rambeau character, this was, once again, her major introduction was, as an adult, as a child, of course, is in Captain Marvel's origin story, and then, then her introduction as an adult is through established characters of Vision and Wanda as the foundation. So this is a series that didn't have that. It had no other characters that, that were well-established in the MCU to build on. It just was boom. And, and, and I know they said that they did that on purpose. That makes me wonder how do they introduce Moon Knight into the larger MCU now. I, I'm withholding my final judgment on the Halloween special, Werewolf by Night. Because we've, we've said multiple times now, we feel that that's going to dive further into the Moon Knight character. That may be the vehicle through which they introduced him into the broader MC. So that that's probably my biggest... Not that I'm, I'm highly disappointed. I thought they did okay. Once again, I'm not as hardcore as other fans. Being a writer myself, I understand that you have to make certain concessions and consolidate certain things when you, when a character has a long, long history in the comics or other source material and their way of, of presenting that Mark's DID is dissociative identity disorder and how he had all the way down to like different personalities as different identities. They did it as probably as easiest way you could to present it on screen for the largest amount of people to understand what was going on without having the, the luxury of five or six issues of a comic to delve into. So that I'm fine with. I am still very interested, like I said, how they're going to reintroduce them into the larger MCU, but I'm going to withhold judgment at Werewolf by Night. And I do think they have introduced in the post-credits scene of the Eternals, Blade. It would make, I, I, I said it before, I'll say it again, it would make sense for Blade to show up in that as well. I think you agreed with me, did you not? Yeah. Yeah, the original thing was Werewolf by Night, and originally Moon Knight was a werewolf hunter, if I recall correctly. Blades of Empire Hunter. Right. Natural teammate teaming up there. Which leads me to, to your speculation that you think this could eventually lead to a Midnight Sun spinoff. Right. That's just kind of my gut, you might say. It's where I think they might be going. Well, it does seem like Marvel is very, very passionate about the team up. You know, even when it's not explicitly an Avengers movie, a lot of the movies are team up. Or classic Civil War. We'll talk about that a little bit more with the Doctor Stranger, more banging for your buck type, type thing. Even though the Defenders didn't do well on Netflix, that was still a team-up. And everybody could see from a mile away when they presented Charlie Cox, Daredevil, Christian Ritter's, Jessica Jones, Mike Coulter's 
Luke Cage and Craig Jones, Danny Rand, this is where they were headed. And I don't think they stuck the landing on it that well, but I think the individual uh, series outside of Iron Fist were all pretty well received to the point where are we getting a, a Daredevil on Disney now? Which are we talking about? Series? I believe so, yeah. I don't know if it will be as mature rated as the other ones, but yeah, it's been all but confirmed that we are going to get uh, at least Daredevil. All right. And I think, I think I've read somewhere that I think Kristen Ritter is supposed to reprise the role of Jessica Jones in that series. Yeah, well. but it would only make sense. If they've already gave us Charlie Cox, there's really no reason for them not to give us the other ones. Well, I, and he's, he's can because of his appearance in Spider-Man. So it's interesting to see how they're going to go. It's almost like I get that it's a hype train that's been rolling for over 10 years now, and you've got all these different forms of medium outside of the comics with the Disney Plus shows and the movies and the shorts that they did back in the day. But am I wrong in, in feeling as a fan, they're running the risk of just becoming bloated and just too much going? Yeah, that's concerned to me as well, because we are finally starting to get the ones that aren't really as well received. I think people right. overall liked Eternals, but it didn't get the glowing reviews that most of the other MCU stuff did. And we all know about how right. well or poorly Inhumans was received. Yeah, well, the part of the Inhumans a little bit more as being canon once again when we get to Dr. Strange. But here's the thing from, you can expound on this when I'm done with what I was going to say. Myself and Seth, we're lifelong comic book fans. We know as comic there always have been lesser characters that aren't as known well mainstream, but have a solid following amongst comic book fans. And there's a segment of the comic book fandom that follows these characters and their titles religiously. And it, they make enough money to produce them into having their own titles and stuff within comics. But they still are. They're not the artwork. Some of that stuff is not as strong as it is in the big, you know, the heavy hitters, the strangers, the Iron Man, Spidey, right? I don't know if that plates over in the movies. That's why I think bloke. I always thought with Disney Plus, they now had a vehicle with which they could do the lesser like Moon Knight, which is what they did. How do you introduce them into the movies where you're going to need the Thors and the Iron Man and those kind of characters to pack the heavy punch? Carrie, I mean, it's like, look at Sean Key. Great, good movie. We both, we both reviewed it well when we reviewed it. I think it was, you know, very well received by audiences. I think it was like $250 million to make, and it only made like $500 million. So it doubled its cost, but it didn't get that $1 billion with a B. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the line of demarcation of uh, whether a comic book movie, these are tentpole popcorn movies, you know being successful. Well, the only ones that are getting the ones now are the big stuff. Like we said, like the crossover Avengers are the main characters on the DC side. They haven't introduced any secondary characters to DC stuff, but that's the ones that are getting the billion dollar box office page worldwide. Whereas Tom T is a very good movie, but I think behind closed doors within Disney and Marvel, they, they're a little disappointed because they, they dumped 250 million to make the movie and only make 500 million, which I know it's laughable to think that that's not a success, but it seems like that billion-dollar cutoff is the litmus test for whether a comic book movie is successful now. And I don't know if characters like Moon Knight and Sean Fee can do that, no matter how right. hard you market. Yeah. I mean, we, we said years ago when it comes to this that there's no way Moon Knight would have gotten a feature film, even no. especially a few years ago. The fact that it's on Disney Plus in a TV show, I think that gives them more freedom with who they can use because I'm assuming they're going to make it so if a Moon Knight does show up in an MCU proper film, 
they can probably just summarize why he's there without having to show an origin story. Right. And, and that's, that's another rip I think you run, too, on that bloat. Once again, you can speak to this as well as a comic book fan your whole life. When you had secondary and tertiary characters pop up in more mainstream titles in the comics, we've talked about it before. You'd have these, what they call editors, that they'd be little bubbles in the corner of the cell saying, refer to whatever other title, issue, whatever. And so they would encourage you to go look at the back catalog. And it was such, also on top of that, the comic book community, fandom community, was so insular and so, so networked so well. Me and Seth have done it. We do it on the show for y'all, the listeners, where Seth turns to me because he's not that knowledgeable about Moon Knight. I'm not that, as a DC guy, I'm not that knowledgeable about Superman, who's a main player. So I turned to Seth. It doesn't really work in movies, does it, with just mainstream casual fans? And you can't put editor's notes. You've now got to waste valuable screen time explaining who's this Moon Knight guy and why the heck is he here? Look, I get it as a business model. You're trying to create the fan from cradle to the grave to steal that, borrow that term. Mm-hmm. I've heard it already. A malaise from certain casual fans is like, oh my gosh, for me to keep up with this stuff, I've got to get a subscription to Disney Plus and I've got to watch all the other ancillary material and all these TV shows that don't really interest me Am I trying to fully understand what the heck's going on in these movies? And yep. they're, they, they're teetering on that right now. As much as I love Moon Knight, he's a prime example of teetering on that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, I definitely know firsthand, even with my own experiences, because there were times I got out of comics and then had to come back in. Like, why the hell is Wolverine back to wearing uh, yellow and blue and that orange and brown costume looks so much better? Stuff like that. Right. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So if it happens to me, who still kind of had the knowledge of the characters, and I have to wonder where to, I can only imagine how intimidating it would be for somebody who is only the casual fan of to, how intimidating it could be for them. Because for the longest time, and still to this day, really, because both companies, I think, retro acted a lot of their numbers as far as their numbering systems. You look at Okay, well, here's whatever, whatever you call it, latest Superman issue number uh, 114. Well, there's no part one of anything listed on here. So is this like mid-story? Right. Where do I go to get the start of this story arc? Because a lot of we, right. we've all had our favorite titles where they get essentially rebooted every year or two because a new writing or art, art team shows up. And, but the casual person doesn't know that. They might think, oh, I got to go all the way back to read to number one and have to read a hundred issues just to understand where, where the yeah. character's coming from. And how, you know? how do you do that in the movie? You can't. Right, right, exactly. This is not printed material. Right. And, and it's one thing to ask somebody to go back and spend a couple ten bucks to buy a couple of back issues to catch up. It's a whole other thing to ask a family of four or five to just spend however much it costs to get Disney their subscription, plus five tickets to go see the movies, plus spend the time to go down to the movies and watch all these five, six, seven, ten episode shows. That's a major investment. Absolutely, yeah. I'm often reminded on off mic talk, uh, where you will point out your friend who's not a comic book fan is confused sometimes on this very thing we're talking about. And you're mm-hmm. having to explain it to her. Yeah. And you know, she seems fairly receptive to your explanation. That hasn't been my experience i have a lot of friends friends who aren't as knowledgeable so they'll turn to me but they're the kind of people who don't like to have things explained to them and so it's like 
I'm in this paradox of please explain it to me, not stop explaining it to me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm and, one of those it, people. It, it, I can get carried away in my explanations. Yeah, exactly. And it's to the point now, sometimes I will just look up what episode we talked about that on the podcast and go, just listen to this at work tomorrow. It's me right. and Seth talking about it. It'll be easier than me right. sitting here pausing this movie or this show while I go on a 20 minute diatribe about what's going on. Look, we all know Disney's an evil empire. They are absolute masters at sucking us in and bleeding us dry of a you know, discretionary income for our entertainment purposes. Mm-hmm. But there is going to be a time, I think, and, and not to get political or social right now, we are inflation and gas prices are back. These are the times, I can tell you as, as a wrestler, these are the times when things like that become secondary to people. And so you're at a point now where you're on the verge of becoming bloated, Disney, with your Marvel stuff, and that's having to butt up against a time when people don't have as much discretionary income as they used to when you started this thing, Tips Go. This is a recipe for things not ending well. Maybe they'll ride out the storm. They're Disney. They've been around forever. They've always been a monster. So I'm sure they'll be fine. They'll ride through it. But the damage might be so done in the next few years because of what all the you know factors we're talking about, the DMCU might irrevocably change to where not what we thought it was on its initial trajectory. Mm-hmm. So that's just my opinion on it. And Moon Knight, I think, is example number one I would hold up for that. I love Moon Knight. I thought they did an okay job with it. But where do you go from here? And is this really the risk you need to be taking right now, all things? Right. Any more thoughts on what I just went on a 15-minute diatribe about? <laughs> no, I, I really can't think of anything else to add. I mean, I think we all agreed that Oscar Isaac did a good job. He was a good big with it. They did oh, show... No, I, I, I was happy with his casting when it was announced. I thought, yeah, he'll yeah. be, be great. Yeah, and and they did touch on it a little bit. You could see he had, the what what do you call that, that little black hat, the yarmulke or whatever that Jewish people will, will wear. Yarmulke. Yeah. I have a yarmulke. Okay, <laughs> so they they did not actually. Not that we wearing my church, since I have enough Jewish friends that I I go I've been a temple enough and enough bar mitzvahs when I was younger that I needed one. Anyway, okay. that grand. Yeah, but they they did at least uh, show that to kind of touch that the character is Jewish because I I figured that was something. Right. We talk about it every so often about ethnicity mattering for some mm-hmm. characters, not necessarily all of them, but Moon Knight is one of those characters where it does because when you think about the history, Jewish yeah. character it's basically. Being a, being a rabbi, yeah, yeah. Well, that's important. It, 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 is, it is core to who, who he is. Yeah, and so now this uh, character of Jewish heritage is uh, doing the work of an Egyptian god. I find it, I find it fascinating that you bring that up. I didn't cross my mind that he, being Marvel, and then DC has Ragman, who his Jewish ancestry is vitally important to his backstory. That's, uh, that's where he gets his powers. So the two major characters I can think of and the two major imprints are that are of Jewish descent. The Jewish ancestry is vitally important to both characters' makeup, aren't they? That's right. Kind of interesting. Yeah, I just one of those, not important, just an interesting fact that I just yeah. crossed my mind. Yeah, in, in a similar way that I, I think Frank Miller had said it best that he, he thought Catholicism to Daredevil was important because he's always depicted as being a Catholic. He was the first writer to focus on that aspect of Murdoch's. Mm-hmm. And we're talking your religious beliefs now, whereas it's obvious that Tala has to be a black man. You're not going to have a, a prince of a Central African country that's a white dude. Okay? Right. As much as I love Idris Elba, that was always an issue for me. It's like, do you want any black people in Norse mythology? 
So I, I, I highly doubt Heimdall was African-looking man. I know. But they didn't go as far as to cast a black man to play Thor. They, they got Hemsworth, who looks like he could have been a Viking. So, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that works. But, but Thor's another example where I think, you know, that ethnicity matters because of mm-hmm. what the source material is. Right. Uh, and we've talked about there's others where it doesn't. But you're right. The Jewish background for Mark Spector, I think, is core to his character. And I don't think they did it in a way in the show that was offensive. They didn't shove it down your throat with a can. Right. It, it was a hint. They, they showed him with a hat, and that was it. Yeah. And, and of course, historically speaking, whether you're uh, a religious person or not, your your view on this will will be different. But you will b- both religious and knowledge will agree. Historically speaking, the Egyptian and the Jewish people are inexorably linked because of their history, their shared history. Mm-hmm. So. It, it always made sense to me as a fan of Moon Knight that his Jewish background made sense in light of the fact that his, his powers came from an Egyptian god. So that was it, almost like ironic in a certain way. Yeah, you, know? you, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to understand the issues that Israel has had with Egypt over the last uh, several thousand years. Everybody thinks Jonathan has to do Moses and the Ten Commandments. Let my people go. <laughs> yeah. So we can both say we, we we enjoyed this. I'm definitely on board for season two, if there is one. I, I take it you are too? Oh, sure, sure. But I, I, like I said, before that happened, I sit cautiously optimistic into how they're going to introduce him into the MCU larger. But I guess I'm just going to have faith and go with it. Okay. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will dive into Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. This is Geekville Radio, and we will be right back. Are you looking for a gaming-themed podcast? Then check out You Just Got Fragged. Join host Jared Aubrey and his panel of gaming enthusiasts as they discuss news and accomplishments in the gaming world. And, of course, the gripe of the week. That's all at YouJustGotFragged.com, part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family. All right, we are back talking Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, the second solo Doctor Strange film. It's hard to believe it's been six years since... The first one, because I still remember doing a impromptu show, like practically on the spot. I think I like did the show on like my phone outside or something like that, because we had just heard the news that Benedict Cumberbatch was being really cast as Doctor Strange. That had to be at least seven or eight years ago. It seems like it was yesterday. Oh, yeah. But now we saw him in other movies as well. But the very quick review and then we'll dive into the details. I gave this uh, a, a grade of a B plus. I was very happy with it. Yes, there were some pretty contrived stuff, but I know you're, you you kind of know more about Strange than I do, but I, I, I take it, I, I thought this was easily as good as the first one. Is that fair to say? No, I, I disagree with you, actually. Oh, okay. I get it like a minus. I enjoyed okay. the movie yeah. because, well, it's Doctor Strange and Benedict Cumberbatch is perfect in that role. And I think you know, they did a good job at wrapping up the, the night nurse Christine storyline because get where to get where you want to go with Strange and where he is in the comics that has been for years Clea which of course was a stinger mm-hmm. with Charlize Theron you had to get her out of the way right. and I thought they did that well I think that that didn't set the table with the the what if that we reviewed and they finished it off here but look I like the movie I'm a horror movie guy I love Sam Raimi and nobody outside of maybe some uh, lesser-known to American audience, Italian directors are better at doing some of the visuals and zombie stuff that he does and, and 
that was definitely present in this movie. The undead strange that we saw later on, you know, right. but I felt that the story was a little flat. Uh, I felt that this almost was more of a WandaVision 1.5 season than it was a Doctor Strange standalone, which to be honest with you, this has always been a, a critique of Marvel, not only the movies, but the comic book as well. This is a Marvel guy. There's always been this, this, this feeling, and even you agree with it at a certain level, I think, that, that the villains in Marvel tend to be kind of flat. There's yeah. a few really standout villains, but for the most part, they're kind of, they're just generic. And that means it's often more enjoyable to see the inner, inner conflict of the heroes. And that's definitely what we got in this movie. And it's like, come on, guys, you have got to develop better villains for your heroes to fight. Because if you don't, we just can't keep going this well all the time. Where your heroes are turning and and they're becoming the bad guys. And, and it's like, you do such a good job at establishing and getting me emotionally invested with a hero. And then instead of just introducing a good villain to fight that hero, you just do the heel turn for, for one of the heroes and then, then make them the back. And uh, that was my biggest issue. Visually, I thought it was great. It had that quirky sense of humor that Sam Raimi is known for. I, I, I mean, I'm sure you agree. It was, it was fun for Sam Raimi to finally get his hands on the big budget comic book. I'm right. sure you are enough of a Sam Raimi fan. You've been waiting for that for years, too. You know? Yeah, definitely, because I would imagine I don't have anything to back this up on. I'm just going by assumption that he probably got a lot more freedom with this one than he did the Spider-Man movies, because we all know that Sony had to twist his arm a bit because he, he didn't want right. to do Venom. He wanted to make it straight up a what was a lizard or Sandman story. And it was like, right. you know, Sandman, finally, after years, he's like, OK, OK, I'll do Venom. Right. It was like. The Spider-Man's Raimi movies, they were more popcorn. Mm -hmm. We big, big Raimi fans do. Raimi works the best when he's allowed to be a little darker. And we got a taste of this years ago when he did Dark. When we got to see him do a low-budget superhero movie that was dark. So right. now we, we were like, wow, we're going to get to see him do a big-budget, well-known character with a dark twist that's comic book-based. And so we got that. Another issue I had, which is just a personal thing, is much like I, I lament time travel a lot on this podcast. I fully accept multiverse, the concept, as a fan of comic books, but I think sometimes it can be a crutch to creative people. And I don't oh, want yeah. Marvel to go down that wormhole, and they might with the introduction of, of, of multiverse this hard you know, yeah. in one movie. Yeah, I, I would like to think that maybe the reason they did that was so they could explain that all the other Marvel movies having their own canon, how they can kind of say, well, this still fits. But right. I think it's also a case as to how they can recast characters for the future. We can have a new Captain America or a new Iron Man or whatever. And they just say, okay, right. yeah, yeah, somebody from a, from a different multiverse. Well, well, that was the weird thing, going back to what we, we just talked about the last segment with the Inhumans. When he gets to the parallel universe where that universe of Doctor Strange was destroyed. They introduced Black Bolt, who is in the Illuminati in the comic book, as the leader of the Inhuman, and they have Anthem Mount play him. Well that's canon. Mm -hmm. So that means their their Black Bolt is the same as the Black Bolt in this at RMC. And then and Benedict Cumberbatch is their Stephen Strange, even though he's he's killed before the event 
that we know. He, we see his death in a flashback. But after that, this is the introduction of new characters that seem like fan service in the form of John Krasinski's Reed Richards. And yeah, that was on my list of, to bring up, yeah. Uh, my, the return of, of, of Patrick Stewart as Charles Xavier. I thought, uh, obviously, Patrick Stewart as, as Charles Xavier was it's absolute perfect casting. No mm-hmm. one disagrees with that. Krasinski, I think, is a solid introduction to Reed Richards. You're the Fantastic Four guy. I want to say he on John Krasinski. Yeah, Richards. he was the fan favorite forever. I mean, he, he, basically, he and, obviously, mm-hmm. Emily Blunt then to be uh, an invisible girl because they're married in real life, yeah. so we'll know how to play a married couple in a movie. Right. Well, they did in a quiet place. His first directorial movie. Look, I have to bring up Cork. That's my thing. But then you mix that with, I, my understanding, it was rumored they wanted Tom Cruise to play Tony Stark, but it right. didn't work out. I can't help but think that that's only rooted in the 90s because Cruise was at one point connected to doing an Iron Man movie in the 90s, and it just never happened. Right. So. I, that's where I think that right, just came from. And that nope. seems like I am fair with you. Now, Exa- exactly. How many people Stark, even know that? And, but Stark Tech is is obviously in that universe as well because we see the, the, the drone. But they look more like Doombots to me than they did Stark Tech. Am I wrong in saying that? Uh, I didn't really realize it until you mentioned it. But yeah, yeah, now that you mentioned it. They look more like Doombots. And, and then you introduced Reed Richards, but still introduced Dr. Doom. Mm-hmm. But then the other members of the Illuminati... At least they have somewhat ties to RMCU. You have Captain Carter instead of Captain America, and right. they have Haley Atwell. I, I just can't see Cap, at least the Steve Rogers Captain America, joining a team called the Illuminati. <laughs> it right. seems like that would be not his style. See, I can't see Peggy. I can't see Peggy doing it either. Right, frankly. And then of course they have a oh, what's that name playing Monica as that mm-hmm. universe's Captain Marvel. And yes, we know in our MCU in our universe she does gain cosmic powers on level with Carol. And then that led to one of my biggest problems with the movie was, yes, I understand as a comic book reader how powerful Wanda really is, but do you understand how powerful Captain Marvel is? And she took her out like she was nothing? No. Hex magic, chaos magic, the, the kind of magic that, that Wanda used is very powerful, but the power cosmic is, is, is on par with that, is it not? Or am I, am I, am I missing something from the comic? Yeah, it's a true superpower thing as opposed to a magic thing, if that makes any sense. Remember, this is the same power that empowers the Silver Surfer and Galactus. Exactly. It's extremely powerful. And and then the the, the inverse of that is, as much as I love Haley Atwell, you all, all know that. Mm-hmm. And I love the Super Soldier Serum and Cap. Cap doesn't stand a chance against magic like Right. Whether it's Peggy or Steve, period. And yeah. she went toe-to-toe with her for a while. And then... And it seemed almost like the way, not going to be wrong, it was a bit of a tell of how she took out Black Bolt by grafting his mouth together so that his voice was internal and it melted his own brain, which, once again, the effect on that, that that's my, what I'm talking about, was, that's the kind of effect that the gorehound would love like me, mm-hmm. but Sam Raimi can make it palatable for a non-gorehound like you. And still make it PG-13. Like how, exactly. But I often wonder how she took him out like a chunk was like just a way of Disney and Marvel. I mean, yeah, we cut up the ball on that one. Mm-hmm. The way she took him out so quickly and so easily, that was kind of like an admission of, yeah. I think it was a pretty and, creative way of how they took out Peggy, having her die with the ship. But I think we we're supposed to imply she got chopped in half there. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. That's what that thought of. It was the shield cut in half, you know? Mm-hmm. But, but once again, to return back to my, my initial critique, why is this Wanda? They're going the inverse of the comics, mm-hmm. or sort of. Yeah. In the comics, 
Scarlet Witch starts out as a villain, turns good and joins the Avengers, kind of goes crazy, and then her brother kind of brings her back down to reality. Quicksilver brings her back down to reality. And she's not as powerful as she used to be in the comics, but she's much more stable now, right? So they've gone the same character arc with, with Elizabeth Olsen, Wanda, but there seems to be with Quicksilver dead, what's going to ground her now? She's now a full-on villain. She's never going to be a good guy now, is she? Right, because I, I know they did the House of M stuff. That was her, her big heel turn, so to speak, the No More Mutants type thing. Right. But that and, was an alternate, that was an Elseworld story. To right, use the DC and, term. Yeah, that was and, never canon, was it? Well, I think it was it, it kind of in the way Age of Apocalypse was, I think, uh, where it, it was that big universe-wide story. But I, I haven't I haven't read much X-Men lately, so I don't know if she's coming back. But I know she she was pals with Doctor Doom for a while, and that's about as evil as you can get. It goes yeah. back to the thing about having, villains having something to chew on as far as uh, personality made up. Doctor Doom's a perfect example of that. But He's one of the few good villains that Marvel has. I'd say him and Kingpin are probably the two best. Right. Right. But I can also see if you hadn't seen WandaVision, because I did have to tell my friend, she was like, wait a minute, how was, how was Wanda a villain all of a sudden? She'd never seen WandaVision, so I had to explain it to her. And, and that, once again, that, 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 that calls back to what I just said in the last segment, mm-hmm. that you're getting to a point now where to keep up with all this stuff, you have to watch all the shows and subscribe to Disney. And this is going to frustrate some viewers. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, going back to that PG-13, it's what I put in, in my review at, at geekvilleradio.com, that there were the horror tropes used throughout the film, which is to be expected with Sam Raimi. Of course, we got the Bruce Campbell cameo, which I can't help but think was a nod to Evil Dead 2. Where and? If, yeah, he has a fight with his own hand, yeah. And we did get it. You want me to fill in the people that don't know? Yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah, it's for the, the Evil Dead 2 you want to fill in people in Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, is essentially a soft, what we would call today a soft reboot yeah. of the original. And so they fully go into the comedy. And a major part of that comedy is that the evil dead, the titular entity that infects people and makes them deadite, you know, like they're possessed, gets into Bruce Campbell, who's the main hero in, in that franchise, Ash Williams, gets into his right hand. And to prevent it from spreading and taking over his own body, he literally puts his leg across his arm and and chainsaws off his own hand. And screaming and laughter as he does it. Yes. This is all you need to know to understand Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell's sense of humor. When he does that, the hand being possessed by the evil dead is still a sentient and able to move on its own, even though it has been severed from his body. Like thing from the uh, Adams family. Exactly. Uh, I, it was obvious that this was an inspiration from this idea. Okay. And the hand's still moving around, so the Ashwin's character puts an old, like, a metal bucket over it and then stacks a bunch of books on top of it to prevent it from moving. And the final book that he puts on the stack is A Farewell to Arms. That's the sense of humor with Bruce and, 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 and Rainey. So the whole idea of his right hand going crazy and having a mind of its own and attacking him was definitely a callback to that. That is the example I always use for people. If you don't understand Sam Rainey's sense of humor, the fact the last book he put on the stack was a farewell to arms with his evil hander. That's all you need to know about his sense right. of humor. Which is why I think as over the top and as graphic as he is, that's the kind of sense of humor that even you can like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the the other thing that I noticed, uh, aside from like I said, we we if you look around, you do see that seventy three Oldsmobile Delta eighty eight. But mm-hmm. it was you know, about these intense horror elements. 
that there was a little bit of criticism for it being in a PG-13 movie. Me personally, I didn't see anything there that was any scarier to me than watching the original Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was PG, not even PG-13, right. when those right. spirits turn into demons, basically. That that scared the hell out of me when yeah, I was a kid. How, how, many, how, how much nightmare fuel is there in that final scene when they open the ark? We exactly. Yeah, that was, that was the scene I was talking about. And stuff. That is yep. nightmare fuel for a 12-year-old kid, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that was a PG for well, us. It would have been PG-13 now, but it was PG for its time. As we were prepping, ladies and gentlemen, I was describing that uh, a Jaws horror movie ripoff called Grizzly, okay, from 1976. They killed like a five or six year old boy. The Grizzly Balls did in that movie. And it was a PG movie. They got PG Jaws was a PG movie. Mm-hmm. Which shows you how different 76 is with 2022, right? right. <laughs> and of course, Grizzly and Jaws and even Raiders came out before the PG 13 rating existed. And it's well documented that it was. Temple of Doom and Gremlins that pushed the NPAA into creating the PG-13 rating. What did you think was the most disturbing visual in the movie um, that made made the PG-13 question? Was it Black Bolt's brain exploding in his head? Was it the undead zombie reanimated version of Strange? What was it? Yeah, for me, it was probably just the concept of the zombie Strange thing. Now, I I didn't personally find it scary, but then again, I'm much older now than I did than I was when I saw. Yeah, you're, you you're, you're 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 forty. You're not a yeah. quite your old But that's that type of thing. Like if I had a twelve year old son or something like that or daughter, I probably wouldn't have had any problem you might, letting might them see that. It. Might well, question yeah. it. Yeah, yeah I'd probably let them see it. just watch it with them. That that type of thing. So this probably does have the most intense visuals of any MCU because of the stuff we're talking about. And I haven't heard anything, but I would not be surprised if it's upset a few parents. Mm-hmm. You said you have heard there's some people that were upset about it, huh? Yeah, yeah, as far as the the zombie strange and such, that it might have been a little bit too intense. Well, well, it makes me wonder, was it being Disney, them going this route here? Do you think we will ever see an R-rated MCU movie? If they're going to, I think Deadpool would probably that, be the most That's exactly likely. what I was going to say. We'll, we'll probably, because we've been told, actually, that they're not going to dial back Deadpool. So They're uh, just going to dial back the character when he's in the team-up stuff. Probably, so that is PC, yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, we'll wind up here as far as, because I got the, the major questions that I had in my review, and of course I don't have answers for these questions. They're just questions I've asked. Okay. I think it's a pretty safe bet. It goes back to what we talk about with comics and comic movies. They implied that Wanda dropped the hammer on herself in the end. I don't think she's dead. I think she'll be around again. And what do we always say about Colin Luke's death? Mm-hmm. Right. I doubt we're going to see Tony back, like, as far as a regular. I think that ship has sailed. But it's still open for most of the other characters to come back. Well, that leads me to a question that comes off of that. So, she's not dead. Do we now receive the redemption arc that we've seen in the comic? I can't help but think that that might be if they're going to do another WandaVision or if that might come into account with the Agatha series that's going to come to uh, Disney+. Plus. I think it might be connected to that. I think either one of those is possible, but I definitely think if we do get the redemption arc, that is going to include the white. Are you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'd have to. You can't dangle a carrot like that and not follow through on it. As far as I understand, Paul Bettany wants to play Vision again. He still has a few more movies on the contract, right? Yeah, I, I, I know he kind of trolled everybody by saying uh, he had a scene in WandaVision that was with an actor he always wanted to work with, with the joke being himself. Himself, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then the final battle between regular Vision and, and white Vision, yeah. Yeah. Now, as far as the Stinger, assuming everybody's seen as we did get the debut of Charlize Theron as Klee, 
I heard uh, that yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch was going to take some time off from acting. I've uh, he's been in a whole bunch of movies in the last couple of years. So how long, yeah, how long do you think yeah. it would be before we see what Clay and Strange are up to? We're going to have to wait a few years, do you think? Or do you think we might get a cameo? Uh, well, we're in what, phase? Yeah, this is still phase four. Phase four, yeah. I, I don't think we get another Doctor Strange movie until phase five. Maybe not even phase six. So, mm-hmm. phase four is played at the end one, 2024, 2025. I'm trying to remember. I think it's 2025, I think. So, yeah, we're probably looking at 2026 so, so before we see another. At the earliest. And I would guess more later, half of the decade. Mm-hmm. Maybe 2027, 2028, maybe. So you, mm-hmm. you've got to get six, seven years. I'm fine with that, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's, uh, as great as Benedict Cumberbatch has been as, as strange, he's never been a top guy on my on my personal superhero list. So if if it's another six years before we get another strange movie, I'm I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right, exactly. The and the last one I had, and this is more lighthearted than anything. Uh, what would you think about a Wong Disney series? He wouldn't get his own movie, but I, I think he, get, he could have fun as a, as a six part series. Well, I've openly said on multiple other episodes we've recorded. Uh-huh. Anytime I get to see Benedict Wong play Wong, mm-hmm. I'm there. Yeah. To, and to go back to your, your your earlier question about Strange not having his own standalone movie until probably Phase 5, you do still think he would pop up and crossover stuff, though, don't you? I, I mean, think they've so. Kind of, they've kind of established him as like one of the new big three within the Avengers, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. So it might be that he might have cameos in a couple movies here and there, ten minute scenes and such. He, maybe what he was maybe meaning like, is he's not like, going to be acting full time for the next few years. Yeah, so similar to like what we saw in like Ragnarok, that kind of mm-hmm. right, right, yeah, where he's like, you know, he's still one of the best things ever in the entire MCU. I was literally falling for the last thirty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everybody wants to see the Loki get fixed on it, and Strange is one of the few characters who can actually do it well. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so that's going to wrap up this review of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. We both liked it, and uh, I guess we'll see what's next up for Phase 4. Well, I guess it's going to be uh, Thor Love and Thunder, the fourth Thor standalone film, yeah. which will be coming up. Yeah, I think I just watched it the other day. They they have now released like the full-on trailer, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, there is a full trailer out. So um, the one that I saw a few days ago was the one, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. The one with one time you want ET as as core like narrating it that that is the full on trailer right yeah yeah and then you know it's got the, the final uh, trailer might be and I, I think they've both have had the sweet child of mine symphonic mix to it we thought with with the use of Led Zeppelin in Ragnarok that thank you ITT like to incorporate the classic rock <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah definitely so all right we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we'll dive into our final and our triple whammy here Obi-Wan Kenobi all time lords and ladies. This message of Romana and the High Council of Gattle Radio presents Examining the Doctor, signature blend of knowledge about everybody's favorite time lord, the Doctor. Arknell to Whitaker, Examining the Doctor provides episode commentaries for favorite and not so favorite stories. Available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Radio.com, or wherever podcasts can be found. All right, we are back, and I, I don't think I'd have to twist your arm train. Sam Raimi could probably do a hell of a Doctor Who story if he wanted to. Oh, yeah, I'm not even at Rudy, but I know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you drink that Kool-Aid, uh, right? Well, you have always said you think Carpenter would do a good hit. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. as a horror fan, have been begging for decades to have a Carpenter script be directed by Ray. Yeah, that would be great. I think you wouldn't even be out for that. Oh, yeah. But yeah. Carpenter, I don't think Carpenter is much interested in doing movies. He's, right. he's quite happy going around doing his music and enjoying 
became the legend that he is. And he's how old John now? Yeah, he's got to be pushing 80 you know, by now, so, yeah. Yeah. He looks good, especially because a lot. he's a heavy smoker and has been all his life. I, I, mean, I, I think he he was one of those guys, he, like we joked about the WWE Hall of Famer Harley Race. It's like he might not have even had any 20s or 30s. He just somehow was born, yeah. then somehow became 40 years old, and then he like remained 40 years old for like the next 50 years. <laughs> and, and Sam Raimi's the exact opposite. He's one of those guys, <laughs> Raimi looks like he's, what, 28 person? I don't, I don't want Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. He looks like a little kid. Uh, and Bruce Campbell, too. Bruce Campbell is a oh, He's aged well. very well, yeah. And we're going to a little bit of a launch on, but we just talked about Strange. Benedict, what? In his 40s? And he looks pretty good. I mean, he's around our age. Mm-hmm. But moving on, talking about, about Obi-Wan, McGregor's aged pretty well. You can buy him, uh, I think he's 50, 51. So that would have yeah, made him. Age, yeah. yeah, so he would have been, I think he was mid-30s when episode three came out. And people are talking about the age difference, uh, this supposedly obvious age difference that's going to happen in the next 10 years. you got to remember, Alec Guinness, you know, one of the greatest actors of all time, he was 61, I think, when he made yeah. Star Wars. I think he turned 61 when it happened. The Obi-Wan, right. at least according to the lore, it was a Legends lore. I don't know if it's changed under Disney, but I think he was 57. The character of Obi-Wan was 57 at the time of A New Hope. But we have... McGregor at fifty fifty one, so he actually would put it at right about the same spot there. And of course, there's a whole thing of living in the desert for twenty years under two suns that might age you much more quickly than living on Coruscant. Yeah, that was one of the first things I noticed outside of the story was that I thought Ewan, with the way he started to age with the wrinkles and the crow's feet stuff, and with the beard, he looks like a young Alec Guinness. Yeah, he really think- fitting the role. Yeah, and, and I'd seen from some of the behind-the-scenes shots, there were some things out there that looked like his beard was growing a little different than what we've seen. So we might see a little touch of him with a little bit more gray. And right, just right. And, and just as a reminder, folks, in case you, you uh, forgot or missed the beginning of the episode here, we're only going through parts one through four here. By the time you hear this, part five will likely be available. We haven't had a chance to watch that yet, so... If you're waiting for us to talk about part five, that'll probably be in our our next review episode. But uh, well, as, the way we're going, we might it might, it might be it might be once the next two episodes we actually get the valley. Right. <laughs> right. As far as some of the major points that have been introduced in this, we do now know for sure because that was speculated you know, that when Anakin fought Obi Wan on Mustafar, and Obi Wan basically turned. Anakin into Torso Boy, to make a obscure Weird Al reference. We thought that Obi-Wan just believed Anakin died at that, because that seemed like a pretty heartless thing to do, to walk away while the guy's burning. But, I mean, what are you going to do? Put him out of his misery while he's still burning and risk yourself catching on fire? Right. And that seems like a very un-Jedi thing to do anyways, doesn't it? Right, right. And here's the thing. There, there's another big potential criticism I'll get out of the way here. This is just going with the lore. And I will use Obi-Wan's own explanation for this. And we'll get to it in a bit when we talk about Vader. But people have said, well, how did Obi-Wan not sense that Anakin was alive? Wouldn't he have just somehow known through the Force? Because it's been shown in other movies that they can sense when somebody's life has ended. It's even in The Last Jedi. Leia was able to sense when Han died and when Luke died. Well, right. 
Here's the thing, by Obi-Wan's own explanation in Return of the Jedi, he ceased to be Anakin Skywalker and became Darth Vader. That, I think that's a certainly a suitable explanation, at least as far as Star Wars and the Force goes. An- Anakin was no, no longer thought of himself as Anakin. He thought of himself as Darth Vader. I think that's a reasonable enough explanation as for why Obi-Wan didn't think that he was alive. And sure. this, is, this is getting to the Vader part. I, I found a quote from Hayden Christensen, and it was one of those things where he said he didn't want to say anything more. But uh, it was about the thing of Obi-Wan really not using powers and Vader even remarked something to the effect of how, what what was it, how how disconnected he was. And there's even the line in the original, what we now know is A New Hope, Vader says, your power is a weak old man. But here's a quote from Hayden Christensen himself about the reunion of Obi-Wan and Vader here. And he said, well, I think it came as a shock to Vader to see how disconnected from the Force Obi-Wan is at this point. I think Vader wants Obi-Wan to be able to put up more of a fight. I don't want to say too much about what's to come. Because that was kind of what Vader was like. He's like, really? This this is it here? I'm just going to roll you around in my own little fire I've made here? Wow, this is too easy. Right. Well, I told you off mic as we prepped for this. This was one of my critiques of Obi-Wan. And there are many. You like that. You like it. It's not I disliking it, but I mm-hmm. think that it, it's flawed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you like it better than I do. Was that I can buy the idea that, that Obi-Wan, in an attempt to keep himself incognito, that he reduced or completely eliminated use of the Force. So this is why I don't have an issue with him using blasters instead of the lightning. Because right. we see that a lot. That, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Right. But the. The level of drop-off is disturbing. Now, I do think, in defense of them going that route, I do think that, for lack of a better term, that Obi-Wan is experiencing some PTSD or some depression based on how everything went down. He Maybe even guilt over mm-hmm. losing Anakin. He even says in, in, return, in Revenge of the Sith, he, he laments to Qui-Gon. Hey, I, I let you down, dude. Mm-hmm. I let you down. I told you I was going to do this, and, and I didn't do it. Maybe he has some performance anxiety related to these events that are affecting his ability to use the Force. Kind of presented that way with the flashback scene, that, that this is quite possible. So, yeah, I guess I could buy it if, if that's the story you're giving me. But it still was something that bothered me a little bit, too. I mean, I understand you're going to get rusty. And maybe, maybe it's also me personally liking my heroes to be larger than life. And we've all seen movies and television shows where the old gunslinger has to come out of retirement to stand up to the baddie one more time. Right. And it takes little to no effort for them to get right back in shape. And if they do have to get back in shape, we get that inevitable montage, which mm-hmm. I don't think fits here. I don't think we should see a montage of uh, Obi-Wan didn't know he was going to face me. He right. did. He was just trying to rescue Leia for bail. So mm-hmm. this was a complete shock to him that, oh my gosh, now I have to fight Anakin Vader. So there's not even an opportunity for a training montage type. But I still think the, the, the drop-off power was a little bit, to use the youngins' terms, problematic. Mm-hmm. But if they're going to go the route of, hey, he's very depressed, he's very emotional, over what happened. He still hasn't quite got over it. Working in the mental health field, I can buy that. So, uh, of all the problems I have with, with, with the series, that's one of the lesser ones. Because there's at least a plausible story 
art in there to explain it, if that makes any sense. Uh, I, I actually thought there was going to be a breakout star in the uh, second episode, part two. I tried to make a meme out of it, but there was that kind of half dinosaur looking character that looked like he had a mohawk. You see him yeah. get blasted towards it. I guess I added a meme where it looks like Palpatine saying, henceforth, you shall be known as Dino Hawk because he looked like a dinosaur <laughs> with a mohawk. So, <laughs> so hey. Lord Dino Hawk. <laughs> so, so, hey, yeah, yeah, Disney, if you're li- listening, give us a Dino Hawk series. I'm sure just the name alone would uh, sell a gazillion action figures. But uh, you're right, right. You're always hard about, about kids and toy sales, so there you go, right? <laughs> right. And uh, this was our introduction to at least live action. And, and actually, in as far as continuity, this was also our introductions to the Inquisitors. Did you have any problem catching on to what the Inquisitors were doing? Oh, no. They, they, they do a very good job of exposition up on that. Yeah. These are basically the elite. They are essentially the Gestapo of, of the Empire. Right. The Stormtroopers are the shock troops. Whereas the Inquisitors are the more highly skilled and specialized training espionage, like I said, the Gestapo. Because I'm going to go ahead and go with the Nazi analogy since George was very heavy-handed with that from the get-go, right? Mm-hmm. All the way down to the uniforms the Empire wore. Mm-hmm. And, the and them all being they white, but that's that's kind of obvious. <laughs> right. right, exactly. Well, we, we for the first time now, we don't see that, but we'll get to right. that later. Yeah. And so I got that idea. And their main, their main mission, uh, above all else, like their prime directive, to steal a Star Trek term, was to hunt down the remnants of the Jedi that were left after Order 66. And as the, that one, the one character who runs like their version of the Underground Railroad points out, it isn't just Jedi anymore. They're actually just searching out any forces. Right. And once again, I, that I like, because even though George didn't have much to do with this, George as we've always lauded him was very, very good at taking our actual real world history and applying it to the intrigue and political and, and, and social aspects of the star Wars mythos. You ain't got to go very far in history to understand that in a t- t- totalitarian government, they're trying to control everything and, and anything they see as a threat, they will, they will hunt down and eliminate. Right. If you want to get biblical, Remember King Harry ordering all the firstborn sons being killed because he heard the, the prophecy about Jesus being born. Yeah. Exactly. And, right? and, and the whole thing of the force and how you're supposed to treat people, that matches with a lot of the religions that are out there. And so. Right. That was the thing I like. But hey, <clears throat> this makes sense. This is this, this, this totalitarian government, authoritative government. They're going to see any force incidents as a threat that Palpatine is. So he is going to eliminate them before they come a threat. It's the idea that Palpatine is a bit paranoid because when you're that when you're that powerful, you tend to be paranoid. Yeah, and power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. So it, it's very much in line with actual historical documented facts here on in the real. World. So yeah. I had no issues with that. And they did. I think it's basically just a couple of lines of exposition, but it explains right away who the inquisitors are. Yeah, and, and I think at least some of the Inquisitors are supposed to be those kids we saw at the beginning of the first part. I, I think I'm I'm positive sure. Reva's one of them. I, I, I also got this gut feeling that maybe some of them are actually some Jedi who surrendered during Order 66 and turned to the dark side. Yeah. Just yeah. saved their own skins. Right, right. And I, I don't know if one of them is supposed to be that, that kid that Obi-Wan saw in, I think, I guess it was part four when he was going through the, the tomb, so to speak. I, I know... Since I'm a couple years younger than you, you you didn't really watch Transformers much back in the day. But that fourth episode reminded me a bit of one of my 
I didn't like it as much as a kid, but looking back on it, it was about as horror as you could expect on a kid's TV show where they found a tomb in space and encounter zombie Optimus Prime, literally zombie Yikes. Optimus Prime. <laughs> and 12-year-old kid that's watching that. Nightmare fuel. Yeah. Nightmare fuel for the 10-year-old. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One of the best endings of any episode I, I think I've ever seen. But now that I've teased it, I'll try to link it in the show notes at geekbillradio.com, and I'll, I'll send okay. you just so you can see what, <laughs> what happens. I've been fairly negative to this point. <laughs> but one thing I think I really have enjoyed, I thought it was just dead on, was the young lady that they cast to play the young, you know, 10-year-old Leia. Oh, yeah. And what, the way she's directed and the lines that were written in the screenplay are so dead on. Mm-hmm. Everything we know about Carrie Fisher's portrayal of Leia as an adult and her her attitude and her spunk, for lack of a better term. Her sass. You totally, sass is a good word. Seeing that little 10-year-old girl and the way she approaches everything is exactly, you have no problems in And this is who she becomes as an adult woman. Right. Because the first yeah. time she literally has any sort of line, she's looking Darth Vader in the space and talking down to him. And then she comes into contact with the late, great Peter Cushing and is just the utter disdain that she has for him and is talking down to him, too. Well, the line, you know? I should have... So no, you know, you were, you were, you had Vader's leash or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he said something about, oh, it was so hard to sign the order to terminate you. And she's like, oh, I'm surprised you had the gall to do it yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yet another one we, we didn't mention, but we can now that his age well was Jimmy Smith's bail. Yeah. yeah I've, I've always enjoyed him in that role. I thought that was a great casting way back when. Yeah. And it continues to be a great casting. He, he very much is this loving father. And he, very much sees Leia as his own, even though she's not biological. Right. He's raised her as such, and he seems like a very even... He understands her disdain for their elitist family, who are right. ruling class as well. And you, you, you firmly believe that this man and his idea, ideology and his vision for how things should be is exactly what made Leia Leia. And watch yeah. people use them in, 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 in the rebellion, in the four, the light side of the force, and the return of the old ways of the Republic. Even though he's an elite and he was born, he's a, he's a senator, you can see he, he believes in this passionately. And he is, at his core, a good person who wants to help not only his own planet, but all talents in the galaxy. And mm-hmm. so he emotes that well. Jimmy Smith is one of those guys. I've seen him play a bad guy. He played a bad guy and seen him full of Dexter. But mm-hmm. he's a good guy. He yeah. He's, like you said with Mike Coulter, the first mm-hmm. time you saw Mike Coulter on screen in Luke Cage, you were like, okay, I'm supposed to root for that guy. Jimmy yeah. Smith has been that way since L.A. Law. You know, you, the moment you saw him, he just has that aura of, I was supposed to cheer for him. He's a good guy. And that comes through Sonny and Baylor as Baylor can. And he had such little screen time and lines in the other movie, we see a little bit more of the character development just through his actions and words in this show, I think. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that, I, that, that dynamic between that young actress and Jimmy Smith and the way that Bale and Leia are presented, I thought was one of the highlights of the show to me so far. Yeah, I, I think so. Cause there was that scene where they were having that kind of grand party or ball or whatever. And Bale, yeah. And not only did yeah, they have that scene of Leia basically you know, saying, I have to talk down to lower life forms so I can talk down to you or something to that effect. And then Bale yeah, is talking <laughs> with the other big wigs and then basically says, we're going to, 
we're going to bring this to the Senate or something like that. And, and the, the other guy's like, oh, we're not going to talk about politics. Let's just party or some, something to that effect. You, you can totally right. believe right. why Bale, even in those times where it's supposed to be fun, why he would still stay convicted to this the goodwill or, or, or what, what, what yeah. should be. Wouldn't your mom always say, get more bees and honey to do vinegar? That kind of mentality. <laughs> I also like around that same time, the actor reprising his role as a young Uncle Owen. Mm-hmm. His, oh yeah, Joel Edgerton. Yeah, right. His rancor, his rancor towards Obi Wan, and his fear of, of of Luke becoming like his father, which we see from the very beginning in Episode Four, we see it again here. Right. And I thought he did a great job with that. So the once again, well written, well directed, and well acted by the actor. Yeah. Owen right. just wants Luke to be a moisture farmer, and to, he is Owen is like a lot of working class people in the real world that I know, they just want to be left alone. Let them, they just want to provide for their family. They don't have time for political intrigue. They don't have time for all the social commentary. They just want to live their life. And that's what I think Owen is too. He just wants to live his life. And they have this, this, this mentality that if it don't affect me, why should I worry about it? And if I do get involved, then bad things happen. And Owen very much has that vibe. And, it's that's reinforced by the bad things that Anakin brought about in the galaxy. And he doesn't want that from it. So that whole scene where he stands all he has he has the argument with with Obi one totally made sense. I thought was well played. Yeah, and this I think that also plays into what I was talking about earlier about driving home this guilt that that, that Obi Wan has. It's interactions like that that like he can't get away from it. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. And, and I know people will say that they bring up and you know, how they brought up the Return of the Jedi that Obi-Wan says, I thought I could instruct him as well as Yoda. Well, maybe he did think that. Because remember, he he was told by Yoda for, for training when he goes off to live on Tatooine. So that could be an easy reference as well. So, so what's, the old, what's the old cliche about pride coming before the fall? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And going back to another biblical... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is what it is. Yeah. Now, get, get some more into Vader here, and here's some of the stuff where we might be disagreeing here, which is fine. One of the things that I'm thinking was, because it was the third episode, I think, that kicked off with Vader talking to Reva, and it certainly seems to imply that Reva was lying to Vader because she made it sound like Obi-Wan killed the Grand Inquisitor, and that Vader was buying it, because she said something about he'll pay for the Grand Inquisitor's death or something that... And we know darn well she's the one that killed him. So right. do you think she's trying to lie to Vader? And does Vader buy it? Because I'm actually thinking we may not see it here. And I, I don't know if this will fit Vader's character to you. So it'll be you know, interesting if we have a disagreement here. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if Vader's playing the other Inquisitors as well. If you're the one that gets Obi-Wan, then you'll be the next Grand Inquisitor. Some, something to that effect. Well, I totally think that's what's going on. I think, okay, cool. I think Vader's in his bed. I think he's telling everybody. Hey, you catch Obi Wan, and you'll be you'll be in my good graces, and you'll be the next great inquisitor. Right. I also do think he was straight up lying to Vader. I also think Vader knows that he's watching yeah, lying. That I think so too. And, and, and at a certain and at a certain level, Vader, because he is a Sith Lord, is kind of impressed by that. Well, how mm-hmm. gutsy is it that you're actually going to try to lie to me, knowing that I'm going to be able to tell him you're lying or not? Yeah, especially since a few years later, but, when uh, Vader's talking to the Emperor and. Empire Strikes Back. I know they did update the dialogue, but there's that whole thing of Emperor saying, you know, no, this is this is the offspring of Anakin Skywalker. We already know that Vader do- does that, knows that, but Vader's like, how is this possible? Vader trying to play dumb to the Emperor there. 
even though he spent the first right. half of the movie trying to find Luke. We're talking about the famous monkey eye scene. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think she was. I think she knew. I think Vader knows she was lying to her. I don't think he knows. He knows she's lying. Right. He followed that. But yeah, I, I think he's playing that off for everybody. I think the, what's the Asian actor? He's like second brother. Yeah. He, his name's like, because uh, he he was in the Fast and Furious movies. I think his character got killed off. But I think. Yeah, it, but he obviously is very much. I don't know if it's because of fear of Vader and, and, and the Emperor. I don't think he has the desire to move up the ladder as much as he's very much more of a believer in just the, the, the status quo. If, if I get made the Grand Inquisitor, great. If I don't, no problem. I'm loyal. He I'm has powerful. more faith. He has more faith in the system, whereas Reva's seeing this as an opportunity to get that quick promotion. That's a good way to put it. He's left off. That's a nice dynamic because these people are all so corrupt and all so evil that the idea they would stab each other in the back uh, and argue amongst themselves is completely believable. I mean, that this is core to me, the concept of the theory of two, that they have to understand that they're never going to be, because there's only going to be two. Right. There's only going to be Vader and Palpatine. Yeah. And so maybe he's comfortable with that. Second brothers, the third sister's thinking, she knows the history, mate. But she knows there was Darth Maul, and then Darth Maul failed, so then he had, Dooku, and then Dooku was even trying to stab Palpatine in the back with Grievous, and I mean, this always has been part of the history of the Sith going back to Darth Bane. He started the movie. Right, exactly, yep. So, I mean, you're always going to have some that are going to be opportunistic and some that aren't, and that's even part and parcel to, I think, what the dynamic between Luke and Vader was in the original truth. Mm-hmm. Vader telling Luke, nah, join me, and together, we'll overthrow the Emperor, right. and we'll be the two that will. Yeah, They're always yeah. going to stab each other in the back. And no. <laughs> if you if you read the Shadows of the Empire novel that takes place between um, episodes four and five, that they get into the character of Vader uh, a bit. He's like saying, "Okay, yeah, you know, so the Emperor wants my son. All right, we'll see about this." That that it yeah, would be in the back of his mind. Lot. My question at this point is, I believe this about Reed. Okay, she, unlike second brother, believes that if I'm slick enough and I I manipulate things enough, I don't know. If she thinks that. Alpatine will kill Vader and make her make her his new apprentice, or her and Vader could join forces and despair Palpatine, and then she'll become Vader's. But I think mm-hmm. that's her ultimate goal. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. I don't yeah. know, and like frankly, she's probably hedging the bet. She probably figured mm-hmm. I don't care which one of them, just one of the two. Right, right now, she just Vader is a roadblock for her to have an actual direct link to to Palpatine to be able to manipulate that situation. Now, yeah. Revo, you me talk offline. She is a major problem for me. And it's not the character. It's mm-hmm. not the stories that are being presented. Because we just talked about, I'm, I'm fine with those stories. And it's going to seem like I'm bashing on most things with the actress that is playing her. No, I think she's a fine actor. Yeah, I think she does a good job, too. And once again, this could be my Star Wars-scented fandom glasses, okay? At no point in Star Wars has a character either in the Rebellion, the Old Republic, the Empire, First or any of them. They have always been presented in a very, for lack of a better term, British, Queen's English kind of way. Their demeanor, the way they carry themselves, their language, even the more roguish characters like Han and and Lando. There's no modern jargon or swagger to them. The way she is portraying, and it might just be her natural cadence and the the way she carries it, it has a very modern, urban feel to it, almost for lack of a better term, almost a hip-hop-like vibe mm-hmm. to it. Nothing wrong with that, okay? 
that is very fitting for a lot of roles and it works in a movie set like well a good example i'm just pulling this out of my butt uh remember 12 bridges or 24 bridges or 21 or whatever that, that, that last film that chad with bozeman before he mm-hmm. away, yeah where he plays the cop in new york having a cop a new york city police officer even a detective in a movie like that in that setting having more of an urban feel to their language and how they carry it completely fits. It just, it just is very jarring to me to see a high-level ranking official in the empire acting like they're straight out of, like, Chicago or L.A. in 2022. You follow what I'm saying now? And how yeah. they carry themselves and how they walk, how they walk, how they talk. And that's what Moses England does. And it's like, I don't think it's her fault. I think she's being directed to be herself, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can see that because one of the critiques that I have had that was negative, I, I shouldn't say negative, but it's just, I guess I'm more accepting of it because it's a TV show rather than a movie. But I noticed that the directing style was very new school compared to the movies. I don't know how many people will right. realize this until we point this out, but the camera is almost always moving in this. It's kind of teetering and panning a little bit. And just my guess, I always kind of figured the reason why directors will go that way is to give it more kind of like a real-life feel, like you're standing in the room observing, rather than do what George did, who did a lot of still shots, a lot of point-of-view shots, and a lot of traditional painting. Yeah, he did a lot of dollar track shots, you know, if you were going to do things. Right, right. So, Our steady game. Yeah. And so you you put that modern camera stuff, what you were talking about, kind of more modern dialogue stuff, and it, it makes it seem more like science fiction and less like the long time ago in a galaxy far, far away fairy tale. Does that sound like a good that's summary? Good fairy tale. Yeah, that's a very good. It's like you can make TV or film have that same feel as though you're just dropped into the room observing it without camera tricks. Right. A great example of that will be the, the, the famous director, Robert Alt. He's very well known for his parenthetical dialogue in his film, where you have multiple characters literally talking over each other, which was at the time when he started doing that in the 70s, was because, oh my gosh, because you didn't do that in drama. One character spoke his line and the next spoke hers. And, like a wrestling but problem, he you know? in an attempt, Right, exactly. But he, in an attempt to make it more realistic, and you see this like greatly in his, in his film version of, of, of Mass during the, the OR scene, everybody's talking over everybody. And it, it, it sounds like what it would be if you walk into like a, a restaurant or a bar or a, a shopping mall today. You're going to hear five or six the pieces of five or six different conversations going on simultaneously, and you're not going to fully pick up any of them. So that's how he was able to accomplish that without having to use camera tricks. And like you said, I think nowadays filmmakers do the camera trick stuff in an attempt to to mimic that real life just dropped in observation but it was jarring to me and i'm not sure if i'm i'm really a fan of because i'm so astonished in my fandom of star wars even the new trilogy the skywalker trilogy mm-hmm. with with ray and finn and all this that's still there as much as i might i thought I, I may not have liked the last jedi and the story that that aspect is still there even there that there's just a much more proper dialogue and 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 uh Way the, even like once again, Poe Dameron, back to offside. Even his character, who's the more roguish character of that trilogy, even he doesn't have that level of swagger and kind of streets in it. Right. Even Glover's portrayal of a young Lando in Solo doesn't go to those levels. Right, you, you could totally has, buy 
Donald Glover doing like a, a stage performance of his version of Lando. It still would work in like the traditional play setting, like a Shakespearean type setup. Right. And Lando, the adult Lando, the, the Billy D. Williams, yeah, he has a ton of swagger and cool about him. And he comes close to having a, a modern urban vibe to him. But he never crosses over to those John Shaft territory, which right. if you listen to these shows, John Shaft is like literally in my top five greatest heroes of all time. It's right. a, I yeah. love John Shaft. Richard Roundtree's portrayal of him is amazing. And he's a greatly written character. But his swagger, his delivery, all that totally fits the setting of 1970s Harlem, New York. Right. Whereas her take on, on Third Sister is, is at those levels, and it doesn't fit in this, like you said, the space thing. I am almost afraid to use this analogy here because somebody thinks I'm trying to bash the man with it, but I'm not. It doesn't feel as much like a George Lucas produced thing as much as it might be somebody like Spike Lee, who probably would have the more urban elements into his. I'm just kind of right. throwing and that name out Sp- there. That, but that's Spike Street. Like, right. So exactly. These are things are the best movies ever made. And, and it totally fit in that story being told in that period and that setting to have that vibe yeah. it doesn't install it, it, it was very jarring and yes you can have Watto, jar jar some of the characters that were introduced in, in the prequel trilogy they are a little bit more uh, away from that but it still fits yeah. within the realm of the star wars universe as a whole shakespeare still had his village idiots yeah exactly there's diversity the only think about oh, what's his name doc the one who is in the, in the canteen scene that, that has the messed up face. Uh, we yeah, have the Dr. Dr. Revazan, I believe, yeah. I don't like you either. Yeah, and he's very gruff, and he sounds like a tough guy at any bar now. Right. But even then, his delivery is still very, you follow what I'm saying? Right. It was just jarring. And Alex, I do not, I don't blame Moses things. Okay, case in right. point, Whoopi Goldberg, who I adore, by the yeah. way. I think she's a great actor. Her character in Star Trek. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Guided. Yeah. Everyone knows that Whoopi can easily channel that more urban, modern vibe because she's done it in some roles like Sister Act. Right. But then she can turn around and do the much more traditional Shakespearean type delivery that she does in Star Trek. Yeah. I'm sure Moses can too. She just wasn't directed to do it. I'm sure she was directed, nah, we're going for that vibe. Stay with that. And I just think, and if that is the case, I really think it is that it was a bad directorial decision. Personally. Yeah, because we, we've said it many times and we could take movies here that actors act to please directors. They don't necessarily act to please audiences. And if a director doesn't like how something's portrayed, they're going to make that actor do it over and over until they think he got it right. You know, And look at what, the, what was uh, Whoopi's breakthrough role. It was The Color Purple, an Oscar-nominated movie that was one of the best movies of the year. Right. It might have even won Best Picture, I think, for whatever year it came out. That was Whoopi's breakthrough. It, 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 is, it is, without a doubt, one of the best movies of the 80s and probably top 50 greatest movies ever made. To be honest, it's that good. But yeah, you're right. And of course, her, Oprah, Danny Glover, they all use period and setting appropriate language and body language in that movie. This is very different from her role, her portrayal in like Sister Act, which is very yeah. different from her from her role in Ghost, which is very yeah. different from her role in Star Trek. Beauty or something. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of, this is the reason why I love Whoopi so much. She's so good. She's versatile. She could, she's believable in all those roles I name. I think Moses is too. I've only seen her, I think, what, one or two other things. I think she has that ability too. She just wasn't directed to it. And it just, 
I think it was a bad choice. And only, and I only say that because of everything else we have ever seen in every Star Wars property up until this. And it just, it's just mind-boggling to me that, and it's like, it, it, it does lend credence to the modern Star Wars haters that you see online that are, that are usually around our age because their biggest complaint is they're trying to modernize Star Wars and they don't understand that what made Star, what these modern screenplay writers and directors don't get is there was a timeless feel in Star Wars because of all the things we're talking about. Right. It, 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 that's why it aged so well because there was a timeless feel to it that could fit in any era. And by doing this, you make it very distinctly feel 2020 instead of timeless. So that's been an issue with me. I do like the character arc. I totally agree with you on what, what's going on and where they're going with her. It's just I feel that she's been poorly directed, and, and probably the screenplay was probably written that way too. Yeah, I'm one of those grumpy old Star Wars fans that thinks that, that has a problem when these things creep into modern Star Wars properties. Star Wars is meant to be timeless. It's not meant to be, well, you can tell these were made during this, this period and these are made. I already get that in my comic book because like the evolution of characters like Steve Rogers over right. what, 60, 70 years. Don't do that in Star Wars. That's one of the things I loved about Star Wars is that there was a timeless feel to it. And, it, and, and there was a concerted effort by George in the dialogue he wrote, which we all know George is not a good writer of dialogue, and the direction that all the directors use and how to deliver lines and how to act that gave Star Wars a timeless piece. Right. And this is a, a thing that's moving away from. That was a big, and, and I'm sure that's probably going to upset some of the younger listeners going, you just don't get it. Maybe I don't. You're entitled to your opinion just like I'm entitled to you know? Yeah. Yeah. The, the way that I sum up the character, this is just the way I interpreted it. It's only one man's opinion here, but we were talking about how the character was acting and maybe she's lying to Vader or something like that. The way I see... The, the character of Reva, because people are saying she's not menacing or something like that. It's hard to get her in as this huge threat. I just see her as the type of character that she's got that place right now in like the lower or middle management level. And now she thinks she's the cat's meow. She's all hot. Did she get, she gets to talk down to everybody. Yeah. That's the vibe I got from the character that she thinks she's hotter stuff than she really is. As far as how she's not quite as smart as she thinks she is. Not quite as tough as she well, thinks she is. Shockingly, or, or probably not shockingly to you, I've ran into a lot of people like that in the rest of the Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I mean, what did Kevin Sullivan say, one of the greatest bookers of all time? Nobody in the rest of the business, myself included, are as good as we think we are. Right, exactly. <laughs> but I was going to add to that is that don't you think that what my complaint is is part of the problem there is that she would be perceived as more menacing by those that complain about that if they did the more traditional delivery. Yeah. And directed yeah, her and wrote her to be more like a Grand Moff Tarkin, to be more like Captain Piet, who got killed. But right. if they wrote her to act more that way, it's just like, what was that commercial they did a few years ago with Hiddleston, Strong, and Ben Kingsley? And they were like, yeah, Brits play the greatest villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's just something about the British accent. And even an American who's not trying to have a British accent of uh, affecting and dictating that way, it just comes across as arrogant and, and a little bit evil. This is why the use of all those British actors and British actors in the early Star Wars worked so well as the Empire. 
And James Earl Jones, who obviously is not British, he's American. Right. Mm-hmm. He has a very proper, almost Shakespearean level of delivery. This is one of what makes Doc Bader so menacing. No, I think that James Earl Jones is an experienced stage actor. He said himself, he played Othello like, you know, hundreds of times in multiple productions, right? He takes that and channels it into the voice of Darth Vader, and it makes it menacing. Remove the fact that he has one of the greatest voices ever in Hollywood, right? Mm-hmm. Right. He has that wonderful baritone bass timbre to his voice. Just his delivery and the way he enunciates makes Darth Vader menacing. And if they would have directed Moses more of that delivery, I think she would be perceived as more menacing by those that they see it. That's yeah. my opinion. Yeah. I think we'll come to the end. Of, like I said, we we went through episode four. Now, I gave episode four, right. part four, I think I gave it a C plus because, I mean, it was entertaining, but there were some things that I couldn't help but notice, which is Princess Leia gets kidnapped again. <laughs> you know, this is the second time again. in the show she's been kidnapped. For, because for, she gets... for modern modern fans who want to empower women and talk about they hate about the trip of damsels and stress, they ought to hate Leia because she's always the damsel. Yeah. <laughs> And then they also had the throwbacks to the homing beacon on the ship, and then Obi-Wan or Ben using the mind tricks to sneak through the halls and and stuff like that. So it seemed like they were just making it a point to put those throwbacks in there. Why not? The Force Awakens is pretty much a soft reboot of New Hope. (laughs) Right, exactly. So that that stuff just kind of, I think it hurt the, the enjoyment, at least to me, because it seemed... Like it was written to do that. I mean, yes, and George would do that too, but it was more in the in the vein of I have a bad feeling about this or the right. here's where the fun begins. Both Anakin and Han say that at, at different points in, in the movies. I also give episode or, or part four a C as well, but my, my problems were not as much that because I, I've kind of almost come to expect that stuff in Star Wars properties. Mm-hmm. throwbacks and stuff. These are established tropes of, 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 of the universe. My issue was the portrayal of Darth Vader. Once again, I'm, I'm going to throw under bus these younger screenplay writers and directors who didn't grow up with it like we did. They came along afterwards. They don't seem to understand what made Darth Vader as a character so evil and they seem to be too simple-minded to understand the depth of the character that was Darth and is Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. And they just know, well, he's the bad guy. So they give you the most simple, rudimentary reasons to say, oh, look, he's a bad guy, which I know sounds funny coming from a, a pro wrestler who loved, like, just black hat, white hat, yeah. very, very little little gray. You were baby-faced your entire career, once, basically, more or less. Yes. Okay, yes. All these are true, but part of what made Darth Vader even more menacing was he was rage-filled, but he was always under calm, he was cool, he was calculating, and he was menacing. And he, his aura and his presence was just enough to make people cow. And here, they have him going through that little village just willy-nilly killing people, including kids. Why? That, 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 once again, much like the delivery that... Moses Ingram has for third sister. This, this is completely new to the Star Wars universe, and it makes it feel like a 2022 movie for the timeless. Doing this with Darth Vader, once again, goes against everything that he's ever been presented as in, in this universe, ever. Darth Vader is, yes, he is Rachel. Every, he has a purpose to everything he does, even his evil acts. I know what a lot of the detractors are going to counter that with. 
we have because he, he's so he's been building that ten years to build up his rage and getting back at, at Obi Wan, and now he knows he's it's that close. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But he'd been waiting to get a hold of Luke even longer, and he wasn't that rage when he got a hold of Luke, was he? Right. Now I understand he's young. He's younger now than he was in those scenes. But my whole point is the, the Darth Vader they they showed was just too out of control, too chaotic. We don't we always say that Darth Vader is the epitome example of lawful evil? Yep, I was going to say that if you didn't bring it up. Yeah, I guess uh, a good Star Wars comparison was he was, minus the fighting stuff, more of the how he was depicted, he was much more like Darth Maul than Darth Vader because Maul kind of had that all rage yeah, all the time. Maul was much more chaotic. Yeah, much more uncaged chaotic. animal is how I would describe uh, Darth Maul and Phantom Menace. Right, exactly. And the way they presented Darth Vader, that's a great analogy, the Darth Maul analogy. Mm-hmm. The way they presented him was much more like Darth Maul, which is chaotic evil, neutral evil at best. Right. And that's not Darth Vader. And it shows me that the writers and the directors do not understand what made Darth Vader work. And they didn't understand how to make him evil and menacing. So they just took the cheap way out. One of the like really nearly kill people for no reason, including kids. See, he's yeah. evil. He's evil, people. Like, you don't need that. He's freaking Darth Vader. Okay, there are just certain characters that are so iconic. You just put them on screen, and you don't have to explain they're evil. Freddy right. Krueger is evil. Dracula is evil. Blofeld from, from uh, uh, Bond. Bond, you know yeah. he's evil. You put any of them on screen, not to have them do it, it just stands. They're menacing. You're like, I, much like the Mike Coulter, I'm supposed to cheer for him, Luke Cage. You put those guys on screen, like, okay, he's the bad guy. I'm not supposed to like him. Yeah. You don't have to go have him do the silly stuff to make him evil. We already know. Yeah. I mean, you, going back to the original Star Wars, we when he first walks in the, in the beginning no. of A New Hope, and he just he just steps through that smoke and is just standing there, that's all you need to know, that he's the bad guy. Right. Exactly. You're like, okay, this is the villain. And, and you seem to not understand. It's the Hitchcock Carpenter, to go back to Carpenter, ideology of what you don't see and what you don't hear, what your mind goes off on is much more scary than anything else. The old mentality of less is more. That's always been the case with Darth Vader, always. And you just removed any doubt by how you how you wrote him, and it made no sense for even the rage filled Darth Vader at the end of Rogue One was more under control, focused, and had a purpose than this Darth Vader. Right. I, I think I can add to that and kind of uh, wind up because what we'll go into what we'll see maybe as far as predictions go. It, it's in the movies themselves. You hear. Dooku say it to Anakin and you see Palpatine I think even Vader says it to Luke in Return of the Jedi they say something about the hate has made you powerful but you don't use it you don't know how to focus it I I think Mm -hmm. because Darth Vader has absolutely perfected that he knows how to focus his anger to get what he wants rather than just kind of basically do a temper tantrum like Kylo Mm -hmm. Ren did for God knows how many times in the uh, sequel trilogy here's the thing Anakin, especially in Attack of the Clones and the first half of Revenge of the Sith, he's already been through that temper tantrum. And like you said, now he's perfected how to channel that rage and hate and, and focus it into goal-oriented, right? Mm-hmm. This is something Palpatine is mastered. He's mastered by the time we meet him because mm-hmm. he's so much about and obfuscating. He's all, already mastered. It's part of what he said, what makes Vader Vader. 
and you're completely and utterly missing point here with how you wrote it. I think you're exactly right. And, and then there's also this underlying current, and I want to add this, and then we'll go to predictions. Once again, from the moment we meet Vader, it doesn't take very long, especially by the end of Empire, once he's revealed that he's Luke's father, then you can go back and retroactively see some of this because you, you didn't have the backstory before. From the moment we meet Vader in New Hope till he turns on the Emperor and kills himself in the process, there's always this underlying current. And we see it in Revenge of the Sith, even as he's turning. There's this underlying current with Anakin doesn't really want to go down this road because he and his part of hearts knows it's wrong. And he is a torn, conflicted individual. And just part of his mind is telling him, this is the goal, and I'm going to put blinders on and then use this power and my hate to channel it towards this goal. But that the other part, the other little angel on the other shoulder going, but she was wrong. And that's enough to keep him also a little bit less Darth Maulish, to use your analogy. Right. And that, that subtlety, that underlying current to the character is gone because of the way you presented it. He's just an out-of-control rage monster. Yeah. So to shift into predictions here, because uh, you know, I want to get this out before the uh, the finale. We're getting back to Reva here. I think they laid several hints as far as her background. I don't know if we'll get a background story or if we need one at this point. There's two right. things that I'm pretty sure of, one more than other. The one that I'm most sure of is you did see her as one of those kids in the beginning of the of the first part because there there was the young yeah. the Jedi Temple with only yeah. fifty six was enacted. Right. Okay, yeah. And she'd be about the right age because that would have been that was like what? 10, 10 years earlier. Frame, that would have been like 10, 12 years earlier. Yeah. And and one of those younglings was definitely a young black girl. So the time frame would put it right. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, I think they introduced the character of Roken in the fourth part, you know, played by you know, Ice Cube's uh, son. I don't want to call him Ice Cube Jr. because that's not what, he's, what he goes, but is it O'Shea, O'Shea Jackson, I think? Because that's Ice Cube's real name, right? He is a junior. I think, he is, I think he's O'Shea Jackson Jr. I believe he is. I think right. right. Well, and he looks like his dad, too. He, yeah, very much so. Very yeah. much so. <laughs> but uh, you know, maybe remember, we got Flea in Star Wars. We ever thought we'd get that, but anyway. Uh, uh, he was actually very good as like this, this, this like sleazy bounty hunter, but <laughs> even Flea but a little bit more of a, of a serious delivery to his line than what, mm-hmm. what Flea does in his normal talking voice. Yeah. Once again, proving my point. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting off that soapbox. <laughs> it's really disturbing. But, but yeah, R- Roken made a quick reference about his wife, and they tried to hide that she was a Jedi or that she was Force-sensitive, but the Empire got her anyway. I think that's Reva. I think mm-hmm. they're going to have an on-screen reunion. Whether she turns good or whether what happens, self-sacrifice, I don't know. And for people who ha- type thing. Right. And for people who haven't seen Rebels, if you might be concerned about potential spoilers, she's not in Rebels at all. There there are other Inquisitors in Rebels, and some of them we didn't we haven't even seen in Obi-Wan, at least haven't seen yet. So that doesn't right. necessarily mean she dies because Ahsoka wasn't in the classic trilogy, but we know that she survived them because she showed up in Mandalorian. And Boca, yeah. Right. It would not surprise me if she dies, but I could also see maybe she just kind of gives up being evil, disappears on some tro- tropical planet with uh, Roken. So that that's my thought as far as her background is. And I, I still stand by my prediction that whatever fight happens between Vader and Anakin again, it's going to make it very much look like Obi-Wan died because it goes back to that same thing of 
especially now after knowing that he's alive. If Vader thought he was still alive, he would have quadrupled down all, uh, his, his efforts to try to find his him. His efforts. Yeah. And he does seem a bit shocked in New Hope when he senses him again. Right. I mean, it's a legitimate shock. You know, like, oh, listen, oh, yeah. I haven't felt this in yep. a long time. So, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm buying into the whole idea that the Roche and Reva are former paramours, but I do totally buy into that she was one of the younglings. Right. In the Jedi Temple. Right. Makes sense. She's more sensitive. Anakin didn't kill her or the, or the, the clone troopers. So, Palpatine, if nothing else, is a master opportunist. I think we can easily say that. So, the idea of him taking some of the young ladies that survived Order 66 out of the, t- the Jedi Temple and turning them completely makes sense. Yeah. My prediction, the only prediction I have is, is, is in line with yours. All right, that's going to do it here for our triple whammy review of 2022. If this is the first time you're listening to us, we are Geekville Radio. We're available at geekvilleradio.com and the podcatcher of your choosing. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, pretty much you name it, and you can find our family of shows for Geekville Radio. You can also find us on social media. We are at Facebook. <clears throat> we can be found on Facebook and Twitter at Geekville Radio for both. You can find Train on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JB on most forms of social media. So if you want to talk to him about whether he's right or wrong or whatever. And if you think we're right or wrong or you want to let us know what you think, definitely give us a review wherever you normally do your podcast reviews. Let us know what we're doing well. Let us know what we're not doing so well. I always like feedback, especially when it's genuine. So the only thing I ask is just be honest and give us your honest opinion. So until next time, I'm going to shut down the power here in the Geekville Radio Studios, and we'll talk to you folks again later. Geekville Radio is not sponsored or endorsed by any product or company unless specifically stated. The views expressed by the host and or guests are purely their own and do not represent the views of geekvilleradio.com, a1-wrestling.com, or any affiliates. Some media used on Geekville Radio is the respective copyright of its publishers, all rights reserved.